A new book chronicles the making of the first folio and uncovers tantalizing new traces of Shakespeare's handiwork. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger Director. 2023 marks the 400th anniversary of the first folio, the book that collected nearly all of Shakespeare's plays in print for the first time. We have the first folio to thank for preserving plays like The Tempest, Macbeth, As You Like It, and many others that had never been printed up to that point. That's all the more remarkable because at the time, plays were rarely considered worthy of such lavish publication. But it turns out that the story behind the first folio has enough twists to fill out a five-act play. It has its own heroes, villains, and political subtext. And the success of the folio itself was far from a sure thing. That story has finally been told in a new book by the scholar Chris Lautaris. In Shakespeare's book, Lautaris re-examines everything we thought we knew about the publication of the first folio and uncovers some new information in the archives. Lautaris's book drops the reader into a vividly drawn Jacobean London and gives us fresh portraits of Shakespeare's friends and colleagues as they take on the task of collecting his life's work. Here's Chris Lautaris in conversation with Barbara Bogave. Why don't we start with the basics? Because most people know that the first folio is the first published collection of some of Shakespeare's plays, but that's not all. So why don't you run down for us exactly what's between the pages of Shakespeare's first book? Yeah, the, the first folio was in a way an amazing work of conservation. I would say it's one of the greatest acts of literary conservation in history. It preserved 18 Shakespeare plays, that probably would have been consigned to oblivion had it not been for the creators of, of this remarkable volume. And so plays, for example, like Macbeth, The Tempest, Julius Caesar, Winter's Tale, these probably would not exist now had it not been for the first folio. So they've really done humanity a great service by preserving these works. But the other thing that's important about the first folio is that it gathered together the most that had ever been said about Shakespeare up until that point. So it contains commemorative verses by a group of Renaissance scholar poets, including Ben Jonson, Shakespeare's fellow playwright and friend, and perhaps also rival. And in that sense, it, it marks the beginning of Shakespeare biography. It's the first time people have gathered their thoughts together in one collective space to think about who Shakespeare was, what he meant to them, and his output. And, and just rounding out the basics here, what exactly was a folio in Shakespeare's time? What did, what did it mean, and who else got a folio besides Shakespeare? Yeah, so folios were large format works. The, the actual construction of a folio depends on taking large sheets and folding them in half. So you've got these huge pages in effect. So folios were reserved for grand works. These would be historiographical works, uh, works by learned ministers, monarchs, works of national importance or religious significance tended to be preserved in folio format. So 
plays at the time were considered to be actually not elevated works of literature. They didn't have the prestige they do now. You know, a, an example of this is the then keeper of what became the Bodleian Library said he didn't want to stock commercial plays in the library because he referred to them as baggage books, which would bring disgrace to the library. So, you know, he didn't want plays to be anywhere near the Bodleian Library. So having a folio of collected plays that were in the theatre on stage for paying customers, you know, that was considered quite a, a daring thing to do at the time. So you can imagine this did actually contribute to the elevation of the craft of playwriting, you know, these plays appearing in 1623 in a grand, luxurious folio format, which was incredibly expensive to produce. So what does all of this tell you about Shakespeare's reputation at the time that his plays got printed in this pretty unusual way with all of this branding? Yeah, this is the interesting thing. So from around 1613, when Shakespeare uh, stops writing solo plays, Shakespeare printing seems to have gone into decline. So you get fewer and fewer printed versions of Shakespeare's plays. And from 1615 to around 16, the end of 1618, there are no new plays printed after uh, a reissue of Richard II, which comes out in 1615. And then Shakespeare printing stops. And suddenly in 1619, there's an attempt to revive Shakespeare's reputation in print. There's, a, there's an attempt to create an early form of selected works of Shakespeare in what we now call the Pavia Quartos. And this is because this was produced by a publisher named Thomas Pavia. And he had as his co-creator of this volume, the Jaggards, uh, William and Isaac Jaggard, father and son printer publishing team, who actually went on to uh, finance, co-finance and print the first folio. So they were also involved in this kind of early attempt at creating a collected Shakespeare edition. But yeah, Shakespeare before that was seemed to be in decline before Thomas Pavia and the Jaggards decided to revive his reputation in print. But the first folio, you say, really, it has a lot to do with the death of the great actor Richard Burbage. And in fact, you begin your story with the death of, of Burbage. Uh, why? Yeah, that's a very good question. So when... so. When I write this book, I wanted to put everything in chronological sequence. So I think for the first time, Shakespeare's book collates the events surrounding the first folio from 1619 to 1623 in chronological sequence. And when I did that, it kind of became clear to me that Richard Burbage's death did have a seismic impact on Shakespeare publishing. It, it made a dent in the cultural fabric because Richard Burbage was the seen as one of the greatest actors of all time. And his death really did, it sparked an unprecedented public mourning, which was said to eclipse the uh, mourning over the death of Queen Anne, who died just a couple of weeks before Burbage. But what I argue in the book is that there's a kind of chain of events. I believe it was Burbage's death that sparked the interest in Shakespeare printing again in 1619, and that, and it may also have had an emotional impact on Hemings and Condal, who were Shakespeare's fellow uh, actors in the King's Men Playing Company, who gathered his works together, gave them to a printing publishing syndicate to create the first folio. And I think it must have suddenly dawned on Hemings and Condal that there would be a resurgence in popularity of 
plays by the King's Men, particularly Shakespeare, because it was Shakespeare's words that made Burbage so great in the eyes of the public. You know, he played all the big roles, you know, Hamlet, Macbeth, Othello, King Lear, you know, all those huge roles, Richard III. And so in the public imagination, Shakespeare and Burbage were cemented very closely together. There's a wonderful quote by Charlotte Carmichael Stopes, the the great Shakespeare biographer, which says something like, people did not realise that Shakespeare was dead while Burbage lived. Well, in the end, what does this uh, story of intersecting and intertwined lives of all, all of these people involved in the first folio tell us about what role Shakespeare himself might have played in this or what hopes he might have had for it? Yeah, this is the million-dollar question. You know, did, did Shakespeare have a hand in his own book? And we can never know for sure. One intriguing detail is that on his deathbed, pretty much, he he revised his will. And he left money for mourning rings to three people. These were John Hen- Hemmings, Henry Condell, and Richard Burbage. Richard Burbage obviously dies in 1619, so we don't know had he lived, whether he would have set his name down beside Hemmings and Condell in the first folio. If he had, that might have suggested that these mourning rings were maybe some kind of pledge or promise, a bond between these fellow friends and actors for the completion of the first folio after Shakespeare's death. And interestingly, Hemmings and Condell imply in the first folio that had Shakespeare lived, he would have completed the first folio himself. They described this as his right to have, you know, gathered the works himself and completed them. But they say he was unable to do this simply because of his death. I also argue in the book that it's possible that the personnel chosen to commemorate him in the first folio were selected because they were his friends. And if so, this might mean that either Hemmings or Condell or the syndicate realised what Shakespeare's wishes would have been. And if that's the case, then there is a trace of Shakespeare's own will in his book. You mentioned the Folio Syndicate. Who, who exactly is in the Folio Syndicate? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So it's it's important to remember that, you know, the first folio was not just created by Hemmings and Condell. Uh, they claim a lot of the credit in the in their, they've got two epistles in the first folio, two letters, one to the patrons of the first folio, uh, and I'm sure we'll come to them in a moment. They were the Herbert brothers. And then there's another epistle to the reader. But in, in both of these uh, letters, they uh, claim a great deal of credit for gathering Shakespeare's works together. But it's important to remember there were many others involved in the creation of the first folio. And among these, there were four businesses. These were the businesses of William and Isaac Jaggard, who were father and son, printer-publishing team, whose workshop was in the Barbican in London. And the whole of the first folio was put together and constructed in their workshop, apart from the iconic title page, which may have been given to Martin Droshout, the printer, and produced elsewhere and then brought back into the workshop for completion with the folio. And then there was Edward Blunt, who was another senior publisher who co-financed the operation. He was a very well-respected literary publisher with his finger on the pulse of the latest trends of the time. And then we have two further, uh, probably lesser partners, William Aspley and John Smethick. So they were also involved uh, in the folio project. So four businesses in total put up the funding this project. And all these different printers and publishers had rights to different plays, right? 
Yeah, so this is the complicated thing about the first folio. One of one of the biggest obstacles the team, the syndicate had in putting the first folio together was they had to track down the rights holders to up to 22 plays. So during this period, playwrights often did not own their own works. The rights to print those works, or the rights to those works outright, in fact, were belonged to the playing company. So the rights to Shakespeare's works belonged collectively to the King's Men's Playing Company. Before that, they were known as the Chamberlain's Men. And over the years, particularly during the first half of Shakespeare's career, the rights to those works were released. They were sold on to publishers who published those works hoping to make a profit. And so before the first folio could be printed, they had to track down the rights holders to up to 22 plays, which was a huge task. Now, the syndicate between them owned the rights to eight plays, but that still left a large number of plays that had to be tracked down and negotiated with up to eight different publisher stationers. So that was one of the biggest obstacles they had uh, in front of them um, before even getting them printed. One, no wonder this whole thing took two years to uh, get published. Oh, yeah. There are a number of, of noblemen who were involved in this project too, and one of them is uh, Sir William Herbert, Lord of Pembroke. Who is he and how does he figure into, into this whole story? Yeah, so William Herbert was a very important figure to the king's men. He was the Lord Chamberlain, uh, an elevated post in the king's royal household. He was in charge of overseeing uh, royal entertainments. So he was a kind of bridge between the monarch and the king's men. And over the years, the Lord Chamberlain was very supportive of the king's men. For example, in 1619, he asked the um, the stationers' company, uh, which was the body uh, responsible for overseeing the publishing industry at the time, to issue an edict forbidding the publication of any works attached to the king's men's repertory. Now, this would have been very useful for the king's men. What it meant was that they had some control over the publishing landscape of works attached to their repertory, and that would have included Shakespeare. My instinct when putting everything together in chronological sequence, is that it's possible that this edict was prompted by Burbage's death. And that is, it's this edict forbidding publication, which then prompted Pavia and the Jaggards to actually stop printing the uh, Pavia quartos and reveal themselves to the king's men, because the condition of the edict was that anyone who wanted to publish any plays attached to the king's men had to present themselves to senior members of the king's men, which would have meant Hemmings and Condal, and get their permission, basically, to print those plays. And I think there's probably some kind of connection, given that the Jaggards worked on this Pavia Quarto collection, but also became the printer financiers of the first folio too. Okay, let's talk about these guys, Jaggers and, and Pavia. And, and I've got to say, all of these characters sound like such scoundrels in publishing. <laughs> it's so interesting. What mischief did these two get up to and how have they gotten such a bad rap? Yeah, so Thomas Pavia, along with the Jaggards, uh, William and Isaac, did have been getting quite a bit of bad press over the decades uh, because they were involved in this Pavia Quarto project. And it was discovered that these plays had false imprints, that they, they were quite misleading. So although they were all printed in the Jaggard's workshop, the very same workshop, in fact, in which they printed the first folio, 
They contain false dates, some of these, designed to mislead, to make it look as if these additions were earlier works that had just been remaindered in, in bookshops. And so there appears to be a great deal of skullduggery and subterfuge involved in the creation of these pavia quartos. And that's led to the Jaguars in particular getting quite a bad rap over the, over the years. Uh, what I, I argue in the book is that it's possible that there was some kind of deal struck between the Jaguars and the First Folio Syndicate so that when they discovered that this um, Pavia Quarto collection was about to be released, they struck a deal, which basically meant that if the Jaguards and Thomas Pavia were willing to make it look like these were simply older remaindered plays and therefore not competition for the first folio, then the Jaguards could be brought into the project and maybe benefit, you know, profit from two collected works of Shakespeare. Okay, well, following that chronological sequence, we finally arrived at the printing of this of this first folio, and you give us this wonderful day in the life of Tudor England uh, at this point inside a print shop. So maybe just to preface what we're going to talk about next, tell us about the sights and the sounds and even the the smells of of Jaggard's business. Oh yeah, absolutely. So you would have walked into one of these print shops at the time. And the first thing I think that would have struck you would have been the din, just the noise of the thousands of pieces of lead type arranged into Shakespeare's words uh, uh, and lines by compositors. So compositors were the press workers responsible for selecting every single individual piece of type, placing them in what was known as a composing stick, then layering those into what were known as forms, which were put into frames so that you could get a printed page of Shakespeare text. This was an incredibly arduous and difficult task. So you and this is like clack- a clickety-clack sound, right? <laughs> yeah, it must have been. Yeah, you would have heard that clacking sound <laughs> of all these thousands of pieces of type being kind of placed into these frames. You would have heard like the the, the smack of ink balls placed over this, this type to coat them in an even layer of ink because these, these ink balls were normally made of kind of leather, which was stuffed. And then you dip them in ink so and an inker would then, you know, slap them over these print-ready forms and frames. And so that would have made a, a kind of a loud slapping noise. And then there was the creaking of the printing presses, uh, you know, with large levers being kind of winched into position so that you could get these printed pages out. I, I just love this chapter because you talk about how the compositors changed Shakespeare's text uh, for different, just very practical reasons of their craft. For instance, when they ran out of space. <laughs> yeah, this is the amazing thing. You know, we read Shakespeare's words and we don't realize that there were so many hands involved that could have changed those words. So yeah, compositors would have, you know, if they ran out of space in any given page, done things to change the text. They might have changed the, you know, verse into prose to squash it into the text. They might have removed stage directions or even changed some of the lines or, or cut things or squashed them in. <laughs> wow. So what did it cost to publish this first folio in the end? Well, one estimate um, for the um, cost of producing the first folio is roughly six shillings and eight pence per volume, which is a very high unit cost. And it's estimated there was a print run of roughly 750. 
So that would have meant a total outlay of £250, which is roughly, in British pounds sterling, £33,000 today, which is a colossal sum uh, if we put that into perspective with a a labourer, like say an artisan who was maybe a goldsmith or a shoemaker in a good paying profession would earn something like four or five pounds. So, you know, £250 was a colossal sum. So it's very expensive. Wow. Okay. So it's 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 finally done, and it's in the in the bookstores. These seven hundred and fifty copies. Apparently, when people went to buy it, they could choose a custom binding. Yeah. So um, books tended to be sold unbound. So first folio would cost roughly fifteen shillings without the binding, which was again a huge amount of money at the time. Probably roughly one hundred and twenty pounds sterling today. But you could pay extra to have it bound. And to get that extra binding, you would pay between one and five shillings extra. So you could pay up to 20 shillings for a copy of the first folio. So yeah, this was a lot of money at the time. So uh, yeah, to get the, the full book with a lovely binding, yeah, it was a pricey endeavor indeed. Well, how did it sell? It's difficult to tell, really. So some uh, bibliographers think it didn't sell particularly well and probably cost the syndicate money. Others think actually it did sell quite well because it wasn't that long before there was a second edition. The second edition was in 1632. So, you know, we might argue that it was reasonably successful for them to have gone into a second edition and felt that was that was a worthwhile thing to do. And how many people are buying it outside of London? And you write that it, it was at the Frankfurt Book Fair. So... They advertised the book at the Frankfurt Book Fair, as, you know, booksellers do today, hoping to, you know, catch the eyes of passers-by and drum up publicity for the book. And then it does begin to spread across the globe. There's a folio that may have ended up in Padua at the hands of, you know, Venetian traders or ambassadors who were who were consuls to Venice from England. And so it may have ended up in Padua uh, in the 1640s. And thereafter, it sort of begins its spread across the globe. Hmm. How many survive? How many are there out there in the world right now that we know of? There are roughly 235 first folios that have survived, uh, and they're spread all over the world. Um, There are very many uh, in in the uh, Folger Shakespeare Library, as you know. It's the largest collection of first folios on the planet. What's important about this Folger collection is that it was the basis for the incredibly painstaking work by a bibliographer named Charlton Hinman, who traced thousands upon thousands of pieces of type used to create the first folio. And in doing so, he managed to work out how the first folio was put together, in what order, and who the compositors were who created it, you know, how many they there were and what their individual spelling preferences and quirks were. And he did this because he was a cryptographer during the Second World War, and he created an incredible machine called, we now call the Hinman Collator, which he used to scrutinize the individual scratches and marks on every piece of type, which were as unique as a fingerprint. Well, it's just remarkable to be in the presence of a first folio, and so many of us have seen it through through glass or, or plexiglass, I guess. Uh, but to experience the book itself and touch it is is just you feel like you're reaching right through history. What is 
your most intimate experience of, of the first folio? One of my first experiences, or certainly I think for me the most intimate experience, was the Padua first folio, which incidentally is the only first folio in a European city in which a Shakespeare play is set, which I think is really interesting. But um, I was allowed privileged access to this at uh, the university in, in, in Padua and basically just left with, with the first folio and allowed to you know leaf through it. And it was an incredible experience. And what's particularly interesting, I tried to get a sense of the feel of the paper because at the time, paper wouldn't have felt the same as it does to us there was a smoother, what we call a felt side to paper, and then a rougher side. And what I love about the first folio is those who put it together wanted to create the best possible impression. So the title pages of most of the plays are actually printed on the smoother felt side. So those coming to the first folio would have felt the kind of luxuriousness of the paper beneath their fingers on the title pages. And I thought that was a nice detail. Wow, you really take us there too uh, in the book in such a, a visceral and, and sensory way. But to go from luxury to kind of a darker shadow that that hovers over the collection, you could argue that the first folio tracks the path of colonization too as it spread across yes. the world. Yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important when we approach the first folio, we often approach it with reverence. This is true. But I think we must also approach it with a sense of an awareness of its complex history. This is a book that in in some of its you know earliest years when it was making its way across the world, that traveled with avid colonizers. You know, one of these was Sir George Gray. And he was very energetic as a colonizer. He was involved in colonizing Australia, New Zealand, and Cape Town in South Africa. And he set up, helped to set up two libraries one in uh, New Zealand um, and one in South Africa. And he placed a first folio in each. And this is one of the instances in which a, an apparent act of philanthropy insidiously disguises kind of darker aims because he was absolutely intent, and we have his writings and uh, on this, on almost, in a sense, obliterating local cultures and replacing them with what he saw as the pinnacle of culture, which was British culture. And in that sense, the first folio for him was a kind of talisman of um, imperial culture, which he hoped to impose on these people. And he uses words in his writing, like, you know, he describes people as being savages in in those uh, nations or as barbarous. And so his idea is that the first folio is a kind of emblem of the almost uh, obliteration of those cultures and replacing them with everybody speaking in English, uh, everybody having some knowledge of Shakespeare. So there are some kind of darker ends here. And you know, other first folios travelled with people who were involved in the colonisation of India, for instance. So this is a book we need to approach with the awareness that it does have this kind of darker history. Well, Chris, the book is full of revelations, and so are you. It is so great to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was Chris Lautaris talking to Barbara Bogave. Shakespeare's book, The Story Behind the First Folio and the Making of Shakespeare, is out now from Pegasus Books. 
Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library, which holds the world's largest collection of first folios, over a third of all surviving copies. Our building in Washington, D.C. has been under renovation for the past three years. But we're getting ready to open our doors to the public again later this year. In our new exhibition spaces, all 82 copies of the Folgers' first folios will be on display together for the very first time. Come visit us on Capitol Hill on Friday, November 17th, 2023, for the grand reopening. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. This episode was produced by Matt Frassica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern-Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Melvin Rickerby in Stratford and Andy Plovnick at Bunker Studios in Brooklyn. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at 3Cs Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice to help others find the show. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.